Welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of the Hopeful Majority. Yes, episode 10. And because it's episode 10, we got to do something different. We got to spice things up. We got to change it up because as our listeners have grown and as if you started to pay more attention, every Monday, as you know, we come out YouTube, Spotify, Apple. I felt like we got to do something special. And every now and then, and yes, believe it or not, I do read. To all those that thought that I was illiterate, I love to read. And sometimes I come across books that I think are seminal to not only the hopeful majority, but to the to the to the project of bridge building, to listing to people across difference. And this book I recently came across called King A Life, just appeared by Jonathan Ike. King A Life by Jonathan Ike. For anybody on YouTube, you know that I'm holding this book up right now and you can see it. I I this book just appeared on President Barack Obama's summer reading list. For the record, I found this book before that. And I want you to know that this is a conversation that I found fascinating. Uh, every now and then we'll sprinkle in an episode where we talk about a book and where we dive into it because I think it's an interesting facet. You know, people are interested in what does Dr. King say about today's moment? What would he say about President Trump? What would he say about President Biden? Uh, interestingly enough, you know, People are curious, what would Dr. King say about today's American race relations? Everybody seems to use his legacy in one way or the other to advance their political project, their democratic project, whatever the case might be. And we really get to the heart of this conversation. Importantly, as John would say, this is not the authoritative take on Dr. King's life. It is a take on Dr. King's life. And importantly, this is a holistic conversation. If you're on the right, if you're on the left, if you're up, down, blue, green, middle, does not matter where you stand, know that this is a conversation that you can see a piece of. This is a conversation for you. It, it meets you where you are. You know, Dr. King, according to this book, believed in America, loved America, and at the same time critiqued its flaws. He believed in bringing together the white working class with the black urban city. And and at the same time, he believed in centering race. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did because it is informative. And here's the spoiler. Dr. King believed that we have to be open-minded. He believed in a moderate temperament. He believed that to push society forward, whatever we believe in, we have to be willing to listen to those that critique us because that's how we build better. Because ultimately, we're on Team Human. we got to give people the chance to be better. So let's get on to episode number 10, my conversation with John. Let's hear it. John, welcome to The Hopeful Majority, sir. Thanks, Manu. And and I know I know you're very humble and you won't say this, but I did discover your book, King A Life, before it hit President uh, Obama's summer reading list. So I just have to say that it, it seems like your biography of Dr. Martin Luther King seems to really be picking up. It seems to be doing well. I am so pleased that the book is connecting with people because it's, uh, you know, it's, you never know. It's, you know, books aren't exactly the most popular medium right now. And the fact that uh, people are engaging with this 600 page book and seem to be really responding to it has been uh, just a joy. Believe it or not, it's not just that books aren't a popular medium, but I only read them in paperback or actually hard version. So I'm an odd, odd, odd breed of young people when it comes to that. And so I have to say that I went to town on, on, on the book. Um, I just want to give you some context, which is that almost this is the first episode actually in in the short uh, but exciting history of the hopeful majority, where the entire episode is actually focused on a book. And part of the reason for this is because I've spent the last, I would say, four years um, putting myself through what I call an intellectual gymnastics course, um, reading different perspectives, different ideas, lives about different people. And Dr. King is somebody that I've been so fascinated about and your biography for me hit the moment. So I just want you to know that that's, that's sort of the context here. And, and I appreciate you joining me, giving me your time. I'm honored uh, to get a whole hour with you. It's going to be great. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Um, well, I, I have to start with with one question. And as I outlined actually in the introduction right before this, that this conversation will be split into sort of three sections so that folks can really follow along. But the first question I have to ask you is, you know, writing a biography is a big undertaking. And and I mean, if you go through just the notes section of this book, if you ever, if you pick this up, I mean, it is extensive. Why write this book about this person at this moment? More than any book I've ever written, I felt like this was like a, almost like a calling to me. Like I could not think of any better way to spend my time. And this book took me six years. Uh, and I'm, I'm 59 years old. So that's, uh, at this point, it's a tenth of my life. When I started, it was, you know, the, 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 the math was even worse. It was more than a tenth of my life. And I would, I would have gladly done, taken even longer on it because it was the most fascinating, um, most, um, 
challenging and really most inspiring story that I could, uh, that I could ever tell. And, uh, the thought that I might spend six years traveling the country interviewing people who knew Martin Luther King, that alone thrilled me. Never mind the fact that I actually got to write a book about it and engage with readers about it and talk to people like you about it. But I just felt like this was a, an incredible opportunity and an honor. That's that's such a daunting task, and and you know, for the audience's context, you, you, this is the first time that you and I are actually meeting each other. Uh, I I bothered John over Instagram, and and you responded, and and anybody that knows me, I would just dig into. I would love to spend this entire episode honestly asking you questions about how you wrote this, the form you took, the the time you spent, all those interviews. I bet that that was an incredibly enriching process. But I know that folks are interested in the actual content of the book, and so I want to get. They're interested in King more than me. Come on. <laughs> it, it, it turns out it turns out that I might have to write a biography called Ig a Life, and no, 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 and no, it, it'll 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 play on it'll play on what's going on right now. Um, that's not going to happen. So look, the, the the first section of this and and part of the hopeful majority's context is that we want to build a world built around nuance, around leading people in a way that's turning people towards each other instead of against each other. A world in which people are actually elevating their braver angels and better angels, and so. Uh, I just want to, there's no other way to start this than actually a question that that you ask in the book and that Dr. King asked. And I just want to, this is the only time I've ever read from an actual book on an episode, but I have to do this. Um, page 144. King would have to be bold enough to encourage the people to suffer for their freedom, moderate enough to keep their fervor under control, and optimistic enough to make everyone believe they could succeed. He needed to embolden them without embittering. Could the militant and the moderate be combined in a single speech, he wondered. It was a question he would ask in various forms for the rest of his life. How do you think he would respond to that question? Could the militant and the moderate be combined in one cause? I think clearly he would respond, yes, it could, because that's what he dedicated his whole life to. And the moment you're referring to is his first big speech at the very onset of the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, December 5th, 1955, when he had 20 minutes to prepare for what he called the biggest speech of his life. And with 20 minutes to prepare, he had to fall back on his gut, on his instincts, on the Bible and the Constitution. And the Bible and the Constitution are great examples of the moderate and the militant, right? I mean, the Bible is a very militant uh, document. Um, the Constitution could be perceived that way too, right? It was a declaration of independence. Um Quite literally, so the moderate and 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 the radical are coming together, and King—that's that's King's whole voice, I would argue. What is what does he mean by the moderate? Because it seems like today, everybody in some way tries to take Dr. King's legacy and apply it to their political project. Um, in his words and his thought process, what do you think he meant by the moderate, and what do you think he meant by the militant? Well, moderate means that you know you're talking about a group of people. Uh, black Americans, 1955 at that point, who have been oppressed, who have been enslaved, who have been mistreated, who have been denied their rights, denied their share of American citizenship. And they are coming together to protest, but they are not trying to overthrow their oppressors. They're not trying to even, um, they're not there to criticize their oppressors. They're to, they're to join the society that is oppressing them. That's moderate, right? Um, that's saying, we believe in America. We believe in democracy. We, we are patriots. Just let us share and let us help you make this a better country. So I think that's moderate. It's almost the distinction between reform versus overthrow, which you get at later on the, which you get at later in the book. Do you think it's also moderate from a standpoint? And that almost screams to me, not ideologically moderate, but it, it screams to me sort of temperamentally moderate, um, moderate in a way of thinking as opposed to what they're thinking. Is that accurate? Yeah. And some of it is rooted in Christianity, loving your neighbor, loving your, even your enemy. Um, but it's also worth noting that their, their objectives at that point were, were fairly, um, modest. They were not even asking for the buses. First of all, it was focused only on, on busing in Montgomery. And they were not even asking for integration of those buses. They were simply asking for more respect. They said, you know, don't make us get on the front of the bus, get off and exit through the back and enter again through the back door. Hire a few black drivers. Let us sit 
toward the front if those seats are empty. They were not asking for formal integration. They were just asking for a compromise. So they were approaching this very modestly in the beginning. And only when they were not treated civilly, when the, when the white leaders of Montgomery refused to even compromise, did their demands grow more radical. What's interesting is part of the reason why we built by the way, I say we. It's really just me sitting in a mop closet uh, having a conversation with <laughs> me too. fascinating folks. I'm in the laundry oh, good, room. Good, good, <laughs> good. Well, on YouTube, they'll see. Um, you know, uh, the idea behind the hopeful majority was that I think there's a new divide in our politics, and I don't think it has to do with left right. I think it has to do with how we think. I think it has to do with theories of change. I think there's competing visions for how you build the world that you want to build, and it seems like that was one of the biggest battles throughout the civil rights movement, especially between. Dr. King and Malcolm X. Um, but before we go there, you talked about their changes and their requests being relatively modest. What do you think motivated and drove Dr. King to spend so many years of his life, I mean, all of his life, basically, um, on the side of sort of an optimistic vision of change why didn't he just th- like what what do you think in his character enabled him to not just throw up his hands and just go crazy because as you said the demands were modest and it took so much out of him i mean the entire book is riddled with a deep analysis of his personal mental struggles why do you think he didn't just throw up his hands and operate on a more pessimistic or cynical worldview i think fundamentally the bible has a lot to do with it if you believe in the Bible, and King clearly does, his father is a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, he becomes a preacher, um, and you believe what the Bible says, it doesn't square with the way black people are being treated in America. So one of them must be wrong. And if you believe that's the case, then clearly you see it as, and if the Bible commands us to work toward creating a more just universe, uh, commands us to try to love our neighbors. And your job is to try to square those two things and fix the one that, that's wrong that doesn't agree with the other. And I think that's King's fundamental approach. Um, why didn't he get angry? Why didn't he ever turn to violence? Why didn't he, you know, throw up his hands or take a more, even more profoundly radical approach like, you know, a Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael? I think some of that comes from his upbringing too and his personality. Um, everybody I talked to who knew King said that he was not bruised in the same way by racism that so many of them were. He seemed to have emerged from his childhood without some of that, that hate, that, that, that anger that boiled in so many young people at that time. You know, when you think about his sort of ability to marshal the Bible to the moment, right, and marry the stories of the, the Israelites and marry the story of Moses and marry the story of Jesus and talk about this notion that we have to push forward because the, the Bible manifests this. Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just curious. I mean, today there's a, there's a rapid decline of religiosity in the United States. Um, it's one of the chief complaints of many conservative, I would say, intellectuals, but also a lot of liberal intellectuals. I think a lot of people are concerned about the decline of religiosity. And there also seems to be an uptick in polarization, uptick in cynicism, an uptick in pessimism. Do you think that Dr. King would think that those two things are at all correlated? given that the Bible had such a huge impact on his sort of quote-unquote moderate temperament? Well, there's no question about it. Uh, I don't know that the civil rights movement or, or King could have succeeded without the church. And and the church not only forms a, a, a common ground where people from throughout the community come together and get along and have something in common regardless of their political beliefs, but the church also becomes this great system for organization. People are, are gathering together already every Sunday, and it's not hard to get them to gather together again a couple more times a week to focus on something like a boycott. So um, that, not to mention that they're actually, you know, reading the Bible and and taking lessons from it and trying to decide, you know, what how to live their lives accordingly. And one of the great things about the, the Black social gospel in particular is that it's always been focused on societal change, not just on personal change, not just on saving your soul, but saving your community and, and healing the wounds of society. So uh, that's something that really, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the faith, the, the widespread faith, the fact that, you know, half of all Americans were in church on any given Sunday uh, back in those days, that makes a huge difference. 
Well, for anybody listening, I, I really want to jump to the question of how would how would Dr. King think about and align with the modern progressive movement and the modern conservative movement? But out of respect for John's work, I want to go on a general flow, but stay tuned because that is a question I will be asking. I have to ask you this breaking away from the book, because believe it or not, I am actually interested in you as a person. And, 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 and that is, as you were writing this, as you were interviewing these folks, as you were, you were talking to giants and, and trying to relay history and as a white American, you know, did you feel a certain sense of pressure? Did you feel, how did you just go through this process of, of really detailing a life, not the life, but a life of a, of a fascinating human? I felt an enormous sense of responsibility. Um, pressure is one way to describe it. Um, but responsibility and anxiety and, and, um, feeling like I just had to work hard to live up to that responsibility and, uh, humbly recognizing that I, that I needed to learn from the people who knew more than I did and asking certainly the people who knew King to, to help me and to sit for interviews and to coach me. And some folks like, you know, Reverend James Lawson, you know, literally became my teacher where I would, I made an appointment to call him every Monday night for, you know, several months and to ask him to basically, you know, he didn't lecture me, but that's how I felt like I just wanted to listen to him. So that was really important. And then doing the same kind of thing with black scholars, asking them to, to coach me so that I would, you know, have the advantage, the benefit of their wisdom. What was the hardest part about writing this? I'm just curious. What what was what made it so uh, both an awesome task and and a deeply responsible one? Well, I think the hardest part was that there's a massive amount of material. It's a very complicated life story that it involves, you know, race, religion, politics, um, so much that I had to learn and so much to assimilate all in the course of you know, one story. And, you know, I could have written, you know, 10 books on the subject and not exhausted everything that needed to be said. So that was one challenge. Um, but then also just, um, I think on a, on a more practical sense, um, you know, getting to these folks who knew King, who were, who were up there in years and having, and, 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 and getting interviews with them and, and asking them the right questions and not, um, asking them the same questions they had been asked a million times over and asking them to, you know, to really think, um, in a different way about what King meant to them and, and, and to think about it, you know, I was trying to write a more intimate book and not just a, you know, a political book that covered, here's what he did. Um, here's what he said. I wanted to know how he felt. I wanted to know, you know, what inspired him. Um, I wanted to know what, what depressed him. And, um, those are, those are challenging conversations sometimes. Well, John, in a moment, I'm going to, I'm going to get back to sort of Dr. King's theory of political action, how he created difference. I want to specifically get to the the difference between him and SNCC, you know, the SNCC and, and him and him and Malcolm X. But before that, I just have to ask you one other question on this, which is that I was fascinated by the title. And immediately when I saw the title, I had a certain perception of this book, which was it said King A Life. And and I I again my English teachers are gonna be so proud of me because I got like a C minus in, in American literature and and barely made it through college and high school. But a, I was so caught up by the word a because that makes him seem both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. As a young person, what I deeply appreciated about this book, the angle that I was taking was it detailed Dr. King's flaws and it detailed his 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 awesome sort of nature. It, is that purposeful? Was that a purposeful intent to really paint a holistic picture of Dr. King as opposed to a one-dimensional one? Yeah, my number one goal with this book was to write a more intimate portrait and to show that it was just a life, that he was like us, that he was human, that he had flaws, that he suffered, that he suffered anxiety, that he attempted suicide twice um, as a teenager, that he chewed his fingernails. Um, so yes, it's it's a life. Um, he was human. And that um, we tend to, by you know, turning him into a saint, by turning him into a national holiday, we we run the risk of of making him seem off limits that we, you know, we can never aspire to do anything like he did because he's, you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the national holiday. Um, but I wanted to remind folks that he was a man and that he, um, he, you know, he was human. And, and I would also just add to your, you know, literary analysis, a life also means that this is one telling of his life. It's, you know, my best shot at telling his story, but someone else will come along and do it again. And there'll be another life of King and in the hands of another writer, it, you know, his, the picture will emerge differently. 
And was the motivation around painting Dr. King again as somebody that is not beyond reproach, was part of that motivation also that you want leaders today to be able to feel like they can aspire to a a theory of change that is hopeful, that is optimistic? Was part of it almost a calling to folks that you too can create the change that somebody like Dr. King tried to aspire for? Absolutely. And and that's a big point that I'm hoping to make. And it's not just leaders, it's all of us, Um, because that's what that's what uh, we're put on this earth to do. You know, it's not about us. It's not about, you know, who can make the most money. It's about how we can help each other and how we can make a better society. And that's, you know, King was, was a great living example of that. And he laid it on the line and he was telling us in sermons, you know, every week, sometimes five or six a week, um, you know, how much hope he had for all of us that we could do better. And uh, we need to hear those words again, because as you said, you know, we're not going to, 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 to religious services as much as we used to. Um, we have to engage with that kind of an idea, that kind of you know, spirituality and, and optimism. I have to say, and I know, again, that you don't know my story as much as I know yours, uh, but, you know, there's there's portions of this book where I'm just starring and writing relatable. And I don't mean relatable in the sense that, like, I, I'm Dr. King. I mean, literally just relatable in the sense of I, I found myself thrust into something that I never asked for. I was a pre-med student. And uh, part of the reason for the hopeful majority is that I think there's an exhausted majority of people out there that have just disengaged from the process, but they are looking and 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 we, we need to inspire them to act. And there's moments where I feel genuinely anxious. And part of the reason I picked up this book was I was like, did Dr. King ever feel anxious? You know, what, what was his, uh, you know, depressed sometimes, challenged. And so I just want to say that I think that you, you accomplished that goal, at least for me. And I'm deeply grateful Thanks. to you for that. It was almost a mental health uh, exercise in some ways. Well, I appreciate that. So I appreciate and, and, you for that. Uh, one of the great things about biography is that if, you're, if you do it right and if you read it right, you know, it exists on multiple planes. It almost, you know, like a time traveler. You're reading about King in the 1940s or 30s when he's a child. Uh, you're reading about it almost a hundred years later in 2023. And you're, it, it resonates differently, right? His, his life means something different when seen through our modern lens. And then it reflects in a different way when it's seen through your own prism, what you've experienced. Um, and then when you read it again, 20 years from now, I hope when you're older and wiser, you'll, you'll read it differently. You'll see different things in it. So, um, that's why I think biography has a lot of power because it's, it's basically an exercise in empathy. It's, uh, it's not only an exercise in empathy, but if you want to learn about life, you have to read about life. And did you just say when I get wiser, are you telling me that I've, I've not already capped all my knowledge potential? Well, There's more to learn to out peaked. there. It, it really seems no, like you I know. couldn't it, go it, it's only you, It's only downhill from here. Um, so I, I want to get back to the content. So uh, theory of change, theory of action. Uh, one of the biggest critiques we get today when we talk about what might be a moderate temperament, and King used to get this critique all the time, is you're too slow. Or that how do you even respond to change? Or uh, that, in fact, there's this notion of all sides somewhere. Or why are we including, you know, the quote-unquote oppressor in our fight to build a better world, Right all of those sort of different critiques. How do you think Dr. King responded to that critique, especially when he was challenged by younger activists that were seemingly much more quote unquote militant or radical? Or how do you think he responded to that when it came to Malcolm X and his rift with him on, on at least just a practical political level? One of the things I love about King is that he was affected by this. It bothered him when people said, you're moving too slow or when other people said, you're moving too fast, right? A lot of, uh, progressives, uh, white liberals, um, a lot of clergymen said, you know, slow down, you know, you're just going to piss people off. You're asking for too much too soon. At the same time, others in the, in the cause, um, others, you know, uh, who are more radical or more progressive or just younger and, um, less patient are saying, you know, what are you waiting for? You know, put the pedal to the metal. Let's just go full bore. And so King was getting attacked from both sides. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about King is that he was always willing to listen to those who were criticizing him. He had a little bit more patience, I would say, for the people who were urging him to go faster. The people who were urging him to go slower really pissed him off. Um, especially religious leaders. When they said, you know, be patient, you know, it takes time. Um, you know, let's maintain good relations. Nothing infuriated him more than that. that's what inspired the letter from Birmingham jail. You know, these, these white, ministers 
told him to, 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 to take it slow, to dial it back. And, and he was, he was furious. But when it came to people like Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael pushing him to go harder, he loved talking to those guys. He loved debating with them and he remained open-minded. And I think you can see the influences of Malcolm and Stokely working its way into King's words and into his work. Do you think that as he was attacked, um, and attacked is a harsh word, critiqued from not only both sides, but all sides. I mean, that that doesn't even include the people that just were detractors, you know, folks like J. Edgar Hoover, folks that were just disaffected by his calls for change. It, it almost seems to challenge this notion of perfection, that there is no perfect way to create change. It, it seems like when I talk to a lot of people my age, um, and this is me actually critiquing folks that are my age, I think in some ways, which is that I often get this thought that it's like, you have to be perfect. And it seems like this book is a fundamental challenge to that notion of perfection, that just do your best. Is that is that accurate? Am I, am I off base on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's harder today because there's so much more public scrutiny and criticism. And if you say one thing wrong or you have one failure, you know, you're, you run the risk of being, you know, canceled or at least attacked on, on social media. And then it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to rebound from that sometimes. But King was really willing to take risks and really willing to fail. If you think about it, you know, after the Montgomery bus boycott, um, activists from all over the country say, you know, we need to duplicate this. We need to make it happen over and over again. We need King to become a national civil rights leader. And he begins trying to duplicate it and he fails several times. You know, he, he tries to bring his movements to St. Augustine, Florida, to Albany, Georgia. And by most accounts, those, those were failures. And he goes in again to Birmingham without any real plan. He doesn't know how he's going to, how he's going to fix it. What's he going to do differently this time? He just is willing to keep trying and hoping something will, something will work out. And what he learns is that his, one of his great abilities, his great powers, his great strengths is his ability to allow chaos to occur, to throw himself into a situation where he doesn't know what's going to happen, create conflict, hope it generates good news coverage, hope it lights a fire under president to do something on the larger scale. But that is, that is not, you know, there's no formula there. You can't say, okay, well that worked. Let's just, let's just drop another bomb. Let's just like parachute into another town and hope the police dog sick us and that the, the media responds to that. It's, you know, it's, he was absolutely willing to fail in order to try to, um, to, to help the cause. And he did, he failed many times. Yeah. And, and you mentioned news coverage. There's an essential component of things that elevated his, his moments in, for example, Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, Selma. Can you speak a little bit to the power of media and sort of the power of, of the radio and television and what it had to do with his moments where it did work, where that chaos did point itself in a positive direction? What do you think was, was the correlation or the use of media in, in the civil rights movement? King comes along at the perfect time and he's the perfect guy because, you know, television's uh, is, is exploding. Um, home, homes, you know, the vast majority of American homes are getting televisions for the first time. And King is, is not just um, a brilliant, brave leader, but he happens to be really photogenic, intelligent, and incredibly eloquent. And the cameras love him. And they recognize that there's this great story because it's, you know, David versus Goliath. It's these, and it's, it's these nonviolent protesters are taking on the police, the water cannons, the, the German shepherds. I mean, it's just unbelievable drama that plays really well on television. And King could not have seen that in advance, but he recognized it really quickly. And when reporters came to town, he was always making sure that he knew that the white northern reporters were going to be on his side and that all he had to do was give them the material they needed to tell their stories. And the, 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 the white sheriffs in places like Birmingham, the white police officers, um, the, the, they didn't, they didn't see what they were up against. They didn't understand the way King did, uh, how important the media was in this game. How do you think he would perform in today's media environment? Who knows? Uh, you know, would he, would he be good on Twitter? Would he be good on Instagram? You know, would he have would he be able to stick <laughs> to his King's message? Tweeting. Yeah, he would be, he would, he'd have to, right? Um, but would he be good at it? Uh, you know, one of the problems with and, King is that he, go ahead. And it, well, I was just going to say, not even just good at it, but uh, it seems like at that time, 
I mean, there's, there's, st- I mean, while media is bursting and growing and the mediums are changing, there still seems to be some relative consolidation, right? In terms of like, there are three or four things that people are getting. So King's message, would, do you think he would be caught up in the echo? Do you think his message would only exist in certain platforms while millions of other people never even hear from him, only hear opinions of Like, that's what I'm really getting at is, do you think he would elevate beyond sort of the echo chambers of today's media, which seems so disparate? Does anybody? Um, that's the problem. You know, the, the way social media, the way media in general is designed today, we are allowed to stay in our silos and not listen to voices uh, beyond the ones that we are most comfortable hearing. So does anybody transcend that today? I don't know. Would King be, be any different? I just don't know. I thought the same thing um, when I was working on my book about Muhammad Ali. Would anybody be open-minded enough to listen to a you know, a radical black Muslim man talking about um, refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Would any, you know, middle of the road people be, be receptive to that in today's climate? I just don't know. I have to ask you, Dr. King versus Barack Obama. Who's more eloquent? <laughs> oh, I, I'm not going to piss off Barack Obama after he put me on his summer reading list. But um, <laughs> I guess that, that answers the question, though. Um, Okay, I want to shift a little bit to questions about the moment, because I know one of the most pressing, and and I bet part of the reason why so many folks are picking up this book is because people want to know, what would Dr. King think about the moment? You know, we, we, I mean, everybody I hear, all the political leaders we've talked to, celebrities, etc., whatever, I mean, the amount of times Dr. King's name is invoked is, is insane. Um, And, and it's, it speaks to his power. So I want to ask you, what do you think Dr. King would say about the state of today's race relations? Uh, how do you think he would perceive and look at the state of, of American race today and how it is? It's always hard to try to put King's, uh, you know, apply King's vision to what's going on in the world today. But very often we can just look back at what he actually did say. And in the last years of his life, he was deeply frustrated that we were intentionally segregating ourselves um, especially in the north where, you know, white people were moving out of the cities, uh, that schools were, were, were segregating themselves, you know, voluntarily, uh, by, in part because of economic patterns. And, and we're still there today. You know, um, he came to Chicago in 1966 and tried to, you know, address some of our, our issues with housing and school segregation. And we're just as bad, if not worse today than we were in 1966. So, you know, King was deeply frustrated and, and felt like, Nothing was going to change until we made fundamental economic changes to our system, that it was not enough anymore just to pass um, legislation on voting rights or on um, discrimination, that it had to be you know, a, a really deeply rooted um, structural economic change. And I think that's uh, what he'd be addressing today, too, probably. That's so fascinating because one of the things that I learned from your book was that the March in Washington was called the March in Washington on Jobs and Freedom. If I get the if yeah, I get the full right. title correct, um, when you talk about the structural economic changes that he started really pushing for and talking about today, there's a fundamental debate in society between race and class. You know, what is more important? What is a more important marker and category to address? Both the left and the right, arguably conservative populism and liberal populism is very focused on this. Do you think that he would make the argument today that a focus on class and structural economic change is not necessarily more important, but more necessary and effective than a singular focus on issues like voting rights? Yeah, once again, I don't need to speculate because we can look at what he was doing um, in the month before he was assassinated. He was organizing the Poor People's Campaign, which was basically Occupy Washington, D.C. And he was trying, he, he said he was shifting from civil rights to human rights and that he was going to bring together people of all different races, um, all different political beliefs, uh, labor work, labor union organizers, um, poor people, um, church people, anti-war activists, he was going to bring a new coalition of people to Washington and they were going to occupy a, a, a town, a little, you know, village, uh, tents and, and shacks on, on public ground in Washington until the government agreed to things like guaranteed jobs, uh, guaranteed income, uh, health insurance, uh, just a bunch, 
big social safety net, something that might have you know, sounded a lot more like a you know um, European style um, socialist democracy. What do you think led to that sort of change, not necessarily in focus but emphasis from civil rights to human rights? I think it was his feeling that um, you know a lot of his advisors were saying just stick to voting rights in the South. That that if you do that, we'll get our we'll get better people elected to office. We can start to change the structure of the nation. We can you know really Im- Im- improve uh, the the welfare of everybody. Stick to voting rights. But King wasn't content to do that uh, in part again because of his religious faith but also because he generally was was moved by his experiences in the north and saw how um the racism there was subtler and better camouflaged but just as pernicious and that really the only way to attack it was through uh, economic reform that until you had better schools better jobs uh better housing opportunities for 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 all low-income people that the 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 societal divides were going to remain so i think um he was deeply influenced by his travels in the north and especially by his time in chicago to think that um legislation wasn't going to be enough anymore well i gotta i gotta give you the the break before this next question which is of course that one you you can't speculate on king nobody can and two is that as you said this is a life which means it's just your take and not the take on on Dr. King, but I mean, the amount of times people ask, what would Dr. King say about President Biden today? You know, how, how do you think he would respond to, to, to the president's political project? If we got into a little bit of the speculative territory without compromising the, the integrity of your work, which I have to say is very strong, what would you say? I would say that he probably would have voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, I think Sanders, again, like on the economic stuff lines up pretty, pretty well, well with, with a lot of what King was talking about. But I think, you know, a lot of stuff Biden has been doing on, on uh, the economy, on infrastructure. I think, um, King would probably be behind that. So King would have voted for Bernie. That's That's breaking news, but, (laughs) but, but that's what you, that's what you think. Now I got, I have to ask this, let's just stay on it for a second because a hopeful majority would try to balance ideological convictions. I can already hear somebody saying, well, somebody like Bernie, he threat to America, threat to American democracy, threat to the founding. And yet what's fascinating about your book is, I mean, King has a deep affection to the American constitution. He has a deep allegiance to the founding fathers. He, he talks while critiquing the founding, he talks about the strength and the spirit and the optimism that is inherent in America. How do you balance his sort of how do you balance the critique that somebody's thinking right now listening to this saying, well, you know, he voted for Bernie. Well, my polarizing instinct immediately goes to, well, he must not like America at all. Like, how do you, how do you respond to that immediate gut, gut, gut reaction? I think he's capable and we are capable of, of appreciating two things at the same time that may be in conflict. He loved America and he hated systemic racism. He loved America and he hated economic inequality and America has a lot of economic inequality and it has a lot of systemic racism. So that doesn't mean you throw out the country. It doesn't mean you throw out the constitution. It means you try to square these two things that are in conflict. I have to, I have to put a plug in for, I think it was episode five. Uh, and actually this, this came from your book. This was the, this was the first episode I was doing for the podcast when I picked up your book. So I, I was reading it and the, the entire focus of the episode is what does it mean to actually love America? Because I, you know, I'm not in any relationships for the, for the record and, and I have a very nascent understanding of love. But one thing I can say is it seems like love means you both admire and critique. You accept the flaws, I would imagine, while understanding what is what makes that person, what makes that thing, what makes that idea great. Why do you think we live in this moment in society where we just can't balance these two? Why can't we do both? And and it seems like everybody's on the left, the right, every, everybody's like, you got to either critique the entire thing and throw the baby out with the bathwater or this thing is the get best thing I've ever come across, and there's no need or even necessity for change. I I know we can. I know we can love people that drive us crazy and love uh, countries that have deep flaws. I know that because my wife has stuck with me um, for more than 25 years. But um, I just think that we're not trying to because it's easier to cur- to criticize. It's so much easier just to 
attack everything and, and, and make snide comments on Twitter about everything that bothers you and not try to think about the big picture and to think about that, you know, we, we all, you know, the, the, the people we're disagreeing with love this country too. And we, we love 90% of the same things, but it's just, in some ways it's more fun. It's more emotionally satisfying just to just keep on the people and the things you disagree with. It's interesting because just the last episode, John, we, I asked the question, which many people have already critiqued me for as being too naive, which, you know, I, I knew was coming, which is, is America really divided? And the reason for that question, while it sounds fundamentally obvious, is let's actually look into the data. And in a lot of studies that we've come across, I mean, starts with us, which is one of our partner organizations, did this extensive study. It showed nine out of 10 Americans on both the right and left agree on a lot of values. You know, there's there's a lot, the media covers crazy hyper-partisan politicians four times more than what we would call the problem solvers. And so the question to me naturally becomes, is it that we're actually really that divided or do we misunderstand how divided we are? Um, is it a perception or is it a reality? So anyway, it's just something I wrestle with. I don't know. Do, do you do you think about that at all? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And I think about the, the fact that um, the times we're living in have helped us accentuate the divisions. As you mentioned, the media you know, when I was young, everybody in town read the same newspaper and the newspaper had a divergence of opinions. And, um, you know, you can, you, you can judge for yourself and the newspaper, um, was kind of a, a, you know, a safe place for everybody to weigh in. And I think churches were the same, you know, um, synagogues were the same, you know, mosques were the same. You came together and prayed and then you had lunch afterwards and you, you argued with your neighbors about politics, but you still were coming together and praying together. And, uh, yeah, that's okay, you know, but it's it's become less uh, acceptable and there's less space for doing that today. And this is coming from somebody that just spent the last six years with some of the people closest to what my, what many might call uh, the most dominant and monumental civil rights icon of their time. That it seems like it's obvious to what you're saying, which is that bridging differences is not mutually inconsistent with social justice. And, and importantly, also bridging differences is not mutually exclusive with a lot of conservative aims. It's just, it's just about humanity, it seems. And it seems like Dr. King, King was about that after all. Just, he's not, a, he's just on team human. And, yeah. and the next question, you go ahead. I was going to say, and people like Andy Young would say, you know, I got to like Sheriff Laurie Pritchett. It, it, you know, I, I got to like, you know, some of these people who were we were battling with years went by and, and they became friends. Um, and if those guys who were on the front lines getting tear gassed and getting thrown in jail could stay open-minded and, and, and build relationships with, with their enemies, then, you know, we ought to be able to do that too. I have to ask you the, the corollary to the, the Biden question, which is, I mean, frankly, if somebody's listening to this on, on the conservative side of the spectrum would also say that, I mean, it seems like, you know, right-wing populism is also talking about jobs and it's talking about economic pain and structural pain. I would imagine that Dr. King would try to stitch together a coalition of white working class and and African-American folks, of, of Indian Americans and Hispanics, that he would try to build a really wide coalition built around economic change, which seems to be what you're saying. Um, what do you think he would say about President Trump, perhaps, or just sort of the broader uh, conservative movement today? Wow, I really don't know if I and feel you don't qualified. Have, you don't, you don't, you, you, um, you're not, no, but you don't have to hold back because really the goal of this conversation is it's it's nuanced. And I think the audience understands that. So this is not definitive, but I'm just curious. Like, what, what do you think he would, if we were just sitting here in a barbershop just talking, like, and I asked you, what, what would Dr. King say about President Trump? Like, what, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, most, I'll just say most of the folks, I, again, I'm a journalist. I like to try to stay. stay. <laughs> avoid my own opinion. Stick, stick um, to the most facts. Of the, most of the folks who knew King well and who were working in his in his um, in his orbit and who, who maintained his values, you know, folks like Andy Young and James Lawson and Dick Gregory um, were not fans of Trump. They thought he was he was um, stoking hatred. They thought he was stoking division. Never mind the politics. I think they felt like he was trying to divide, and um, that he was. Um, Encouraging people to uh, to wallow in their in their prejudices, to um, to to tear down people they perceived as the other, and I think that uh, King would certainly uh, be you know strongly opposed to that uh, that approach to, to to leading. Well, something I want to deeply appreciate about this conversation, John, is. Uh, 
there's a piece of of King's life and the message that you're talking about that everybody across the political spectrum can grab onto. You, know, you talked about loving America, you talked about loving the founding. You also talked about critiquing America. You talk about economic freedom, and at the same time, you talk about a focus on race. I mean, it seems like shocker. The nuance around King is something where he can't be placed in a bucket, a label. You know, it seems like there's a there's a bigger concept here, bigger idea. And that's exactly the goal of this podcast. I think everybody here today is, has come away with something where they can say, I can see that. And I can imagine a conservative listening to this and sharing this episode with their liberal friends saying, see, he, he is willing to listen to the white working class. And I could imagine a, a liberal person sitting here and saying, sharing this with their conservative friends saying, see, he, he might critique the the structural racism inherent in the country. It, would you sort of broadly uh, uh, agree with sort of that analysis? King was really um, broad-minded and and open-minded and willing to learn from other people. And I think, you know, he resisted the temptation. He was asked sometimes to run for president on an independent party ticket. Even that um, didn't work for him because he was, he did not see himself as a political person. He saw himself as a moralist and he saw himself as a preacher. He said over and over again, in my, in my heart of hearts, I'm a preacher and that's all I ever wanted to be. And he was put into this position that resembled political leadership, but that's not how he saw it. He saw it as preaching to save the soul of the nation. And, you know, one of my favorite moments in this book is this conversation that he has in 1967 with one of his closest advisors and best friends, Stan Levison. And we have the conversation transcribed because the FBI was wiretapping their phones. And, and um, we haven't talked about that, but the surveillance against King was relentless. Um, but here he is with one of his closest advisors, closest friends, after what I consider King's greatest speech at the Riverside Church in New York City on April 4th, 1967, in which he basically summarizes his, his, his biggest religious beliefs and his, his belief that um, he has to speak out, not just against racism, but against militarism and materialism. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. And his best friend, one of his best friends says to him, I think that speech was a terrible mistake. It didn't sound like you. It's cost us all kinds of support among our our patrons. It's going to hurt your relationship with the president of the United States. I just don't think it was wise. And King, you can almost sense the, the tears, you know, the, the heartbreak. He says, you know, it may have been politically unwise, but it was not morally unwise. And this is who I am. You know, haven't you been paying attention to what I believe, to what I've been saying all these years? It's not about what's going to get me the most points politically or what's going to make me the strongest in my negotiations with the White House. It's about what I think is the right thing to do. And for him to be guided by that at that point in his career, to still be guided by what he thinks is the right thing to do, is just extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, part of my instinct is just to sit with that because I think I think what I took away most from the book, I mean, beyond just the the personal sort of uh, almost uh, sense of relatability to this idea of just being thrust into, and a lot of people can relate to this, just being thrust into something that you never felt you were going to do, but then you feel deeply called to. But the big thing that I took away from this is just, he, he was just doing his best and he, and he deeply, it seemed believed in, in, in his ideas, but was willing to change his ideas and feel challenged and feel critique and, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, if we strip away all the complexity of everything, John, like that we're just all humans. And, and I, and I wish, I wish we could build and, and live in a world in which people's immediate rush wasn't to critique, jump, you know, tweet, act. It was, it, it but, but to give people the chance to just be better. I, I just wish, I, I don't understand why, I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, do you get saying. it? No. Um, just give people but King got better. It, um, because King um, knew he was deeply flawed. He, knew, he, he was suffering from anxiety. He was hospitalized for exhaustion. Uh, Jesse Jackson called it clinical depression. Um, he was having affairs with women other than his wife. He knew he was not perfect. But as you said, he was just trying. He was just trying to do his best. And he kept going. When he could have stopped, he could have said, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. I'm going to let someone else do this. Um, someone else can take the heat for a while, but he, 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 he knew, you know, he, he believed it was important to keep going. 
Well, you know, there's, I mean, there's so many topics that are still uncovered. Like you mentioned the FBI and the surveillance. For that, people have to go read the book. Read the book, read the book, people, listen to the book. I Just so you know, John, there's, in the opening, I talk about this, but there's every year, and our team is so annoyed, I send out a book that nobody reads. I know it just sits on their shelf, but I sent a copy of a book. Last year, The Soul of America by John Meacham. This year, this might be it. Um, and so there's so many different topics in this. I just have to ask you two last questions um, because, again, I want to be respectful of your time. The first question is, you know, we touched a lot, and so maybe you might not have an answer to this question, but you might already say that we've covered it. But what is one thing, what is the, the big takeaway that you want somebody that is reading this book to leave with? If, 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 or the big uh, misunderstanding, whatever the case might be, um, about Dr. King, where you're like, you were writing this and you're like, this is the, this is something that I just hope that people leave with. I hope people leave with the fact that he was a man, that he was human, that he had flaws, but he was so absolutely committed to his faith and his belief in this country that he was willing to sacrifice his life for it, even when he knew that our government, the government he was trying to negotiate with, that our government was trying to destroy him, he he continued. He never gave up, and and that kind of that kind of hope really inspires me. Last question is a question we ask everybody. It's a question I ask uh, myself a lot. It's written on our team meetings. Uh, the question of why, you know, we ask everybody this from political leaders to celebrities to authors to writers. Um, it's something that I learn a lot from because the 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 title of this show is The Hopeful Majority. And I think, I mean, Dr. King talked about this a lot, but to be hopeful, to have a sense of optimism, you have to have a really good answer to your why. And I think for him, it seemed that religion was a big portion of his why. The moral world that he was building was a big portion of his why. For you personally, and yes, we're going over from King. I'm curious about you as a person, believe it or not. I learned a lot from this conversation. What is your why? And you can take that in any way, whether it's in writing this book, and living your life, what is your why? I believe in making connections with humans, with other people, especially people who are not like me. That's the fun of being a journalist and having a notebook and getting to knock on someone's door and saying, tell me your story. And I feel really blessed that I get to tell someone else's story, the, maybe the most important American um, I know, Martin Luther King. And then I get to introduce him to other people and they get to know him and reflect on him in their own way. So that's my why. I, I get to make connections between people. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. And to anybody listening, it seems like Dr. King would both be somebody that is interested in a world in which we are open-minded, but also somebody that's interested in building a world where we just give people a chance to be better. I appreciate you, sir. Thanks for your time. Thank you to John for that very insightful conversation. That's a wrap on episode number 10. I'll see you next week, next Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. Remember, we've got a hopeful majority to build. We got to uh, fight outrage. We got to build nuance. We have to incentivize that temperament that Dr. King preached. And importantly, remember, regardless of where you're on the political spectrum, that was a conversation that I think everybody can hold a piece of. And that is what matters in today's society. We have to tell stories that bring people together in those coalitions. I'm so grateful to you for listening. Continue on. These first 10 are only the first 10 of many episodes. I appreciate you. I'm grateful to you. See you next Monday. <laughs>